This week, the science behind Alex Garland's hit new movie, Annihilation, and the inside story of one of the greatest TV shows ever. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hey guys, and welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original podcast. I'm Christina Jerling-Biro. So I'm very excited because this week we get to take a peek behind the curtain at some really, really spectacular TV and movie making. Later on the show, I talk to best-selling author Jonathan Abrams about his very excellent new book, All the Pieces Matter, The Inside Story of the Wire. Now, it's an oral history of what many of us consider to be one of the best TV dramas ever. We talk about the show's impact on the viewers, on Baltimore, the creation of some of the iconic characters, and more. But first... One of the most talked about movies of the spring is definitely director Alex Garland's Annihilation. It's really a sensory experience. It's both confusing and unnerving. So Natalie Portman plays Lena. She's a biologist and a former soldier. She joins a mission to uncover what happened to her husband. He has mysteriously returned from inside a quarantined area they call the Shimmer. Inside the Shimmer, Lena and the expedition find a landscape of mutating creatures and human-shaped plants. It's beautiful, but deadly. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's beautiful. Check this out. It's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation. Anything interesting in there? No. It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. In order to get the science of the film right, Alex Garland took the help of a science advisor, Dr. Adam Rutherford. He's also worked with him on his previous film, the critically acclaimed Ex Machina. Dr. Rutherford is a geneticist, a science writer, and the host of BBC Radio 4's Inside Science. He's worked as a science advisor on TV and cinema productions such as World War Z, the sci-fi film Life starring Jake Gyllenhaal, as well as Garland's two latest films. Now, there will be some spoilers about Annihilation and other sci-fi films in our conversation, so please take note. Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, Christina, nice to talk to you. And congratulations for both scaring us and confusing us at the same time with this latest one. I think that is, that's exactly the reaction that, uh, that we were all hoping for. <laughs> Good. So uh, before we get into that movie, you've advised on a whole lot of big movies and TV shows and thought about um, sort of pop culture, but approaching it through your real science and work, what have you noticed that seems to really freak us layman people out? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um, and I think that it is... One of the things that we did in Annihilation, inside the Shimmer, so, so this area where things are, 
weirded and you know weirded out and people, there's a sort of refractive quality to it but also the alien that we try to create in life i think they all relate to this concept that people talk about in hollywood and also in design which is the uncanny valley which is things that are just not quite right they're just a bit off and so i think that you know, humans have an enormous amount of brain power that we've, we have earned through evolution devoted to recognizing faces and recognizing other consciousnesses. And, and we, we do it all the time and to the extent that we, we try to attribute agency to things that actually aren't there and people see faces in, in you know, pieces of toast or, or um, in machinery. But it, it, what really freaks us out, I think, is things that we recognize as being, you know, almost human or almost sentient, but just slightly different. So rather than the, you know, sort of really grotesque monsters, which can be scary in themselves, it is things that look a bit like us, but definitely aren't us. And we, we can't quite work out why. I, I, I think these are the things that really um, we find incredibly discombobulating. That's what's freaking me out with Annihilation, <laughs> exactly what you're describing here, that one doesn't really get it. <laughs> um, but getting into that movie, what is Alex Gardland's approach to science when he works with you? Uh, he's an extremely intelligent man. He's extremely hardworking and, and, um, and, and sort of very meticulous. And so all three times he's presented me with a script and says, like, there's some scientific ideas in this, I want to make sure that they are grounded in real science. And so in talking about annihilation, one of the things that we've been saying is that it is fiction. And a lot of the biology that we're talking about in all the characters are talking about in annihilation it is fiction. It's, it's not possible, mm -hmm. but it's not bullshit. Right? It's, it's, it's we, you know, we try to ground it in scientific ideas that are real and contemporary and things that scientists uh, are actively researching, or that you know I teach, but that they are they're, they're manipulated or they're twisted or they're enhanced in such a way that they are um, that they're fictionalized. He's really keen to get proper scientific ideas that push the boundaries of uh, of human experience and human knowledge into his films, whilst you know making sure that the films are you know entertaining or thrilling or in your case terrifying and confusing <laughs> <laughs> what what is the what would you say is the real science of annihilation well we talk a lot about um uh the dna mutation so i'm a geneticist and that's that's my background and in fact i worked on genes that are closely related to the ones that um natalie portman and tessa thompson's character discuss when they they okay so this is a spoiler when they come to the 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 area where plants are growing in human form. I think right. you see that in the trailer. And Raddick, which is Tessa Thompson's character, tries to sort of rationalize what they're seeing by talking about the genes involved in body plan. The genes that have been known for a few years now lay out the body plan of pretty much all organisms. So it doesn't matter whether you're a human or a blue whale or a worm. We have very similar genes that lay out that this end is going to be your head and this end is going to be your tail. And in the middle, there's going to be, you know, organs and legs in this particular order. Mm -hmm. So Alex wanted to put these, you know, really freaky plant-like human figures into the film. And the discussion that the biologist and the physicist have is to try and 
rationalize why plants would grow like humans. And so they actually talk about these genes. Now, it's, it's a good example of how it, that is fiction. Natalie Portman's character says that's impossible. <laughs> you wanted that line. <laughs> I, I love that line because Tessa Thompson's reaction is, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you may have noticed that annihilation doesn't give many answers, although it asks a lot of questions. Well, that's a good example. It's a robust scientific answer by Natalie, and it's a robust fictional answer by Tessa. But in terms of sort of the the theme of, what should we say, nature becoming violent um, through mutations, one could say, is this something that you think is possible at all? Nature is inherently, profoundly violent. (laughs) But even more so. (laughs) It doesn't need need mutations from aliens from space to to be more violent than it is already. Of course, the, the famous line, nature is red in tooth and claw, well, I think that none of the violence that happens in the in annihilation is in any way different from what we actually see in nature. And, and it is a manifestation of how evolution works in that the crocodile, for example, is merely threatened and confused. The bear, um, again, spoiler alerts. The, the bear is profoundly diseased and damaged. And this is you know, there's a there's a metaphor that runs throughout the film about uh, cancer. Right. Yeah, I remember reading this when Alex first sent me the scripts, which was like I don't know, three years ago now. Um, reading how he described the bear in that, which also features in the book um, by Jeff Van Der Meer, from which is what the film is an adaptation of. He describes it as being sort of scabrous and diseased, and you know, covered in in lesions on its skin, and you know, I read that and thought that's pretty grim. Mm-hmm. And then when when I saw the when I saw what they'd actually done in the film, I, I think I turned to Alex and said, there's something wrong with you, buddy. <laughs> that bear is grim. It is, it is. Um, have you ever sort of drawn a line in the sand on a project, so to speak, and says, nope, this is just too corny, too outrageous? No, not really. But, you know, Alex will come to me or other other projects, the director or the writer will come to me and say, what do you think of this? So sometimes it's specific things like actually, you know, they wouldn't have an electron microscope on the International Space Station. That that was a conversation I had in making the film Life a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. to which the writers and the filmmakers go, yeah, of course, that's that's just sort of practically impossible. And then there's other scenarios where you say, well, it doesn't quite work like this, but this is how it could work. And so, you know, as scientific advisor, you have to sort of respect the creative process. You are just an advisor. You're there to respond to the writers or the directors or, or the designers, because I've worked a lot with designers as well in getting things right, in saying, well, you know, I can say that pipette isn't the type of pipette that a biologist would use in the field. And the, the designer or the director could quite reasonably say, you know what, I don't care. That's not important. And my, my job is to respect that and say, well, you know, that, that's fine because it isn't really that important. But if they're saying things which are sort of factually incorrect or factually implausible, then it's my job to say, I don't think they would say stuff like that. Um, maybe they would say, say stuff like this instead. So one thing you must be doing when you're helping these, uh, working with these films is you're actually sort of helping create a real scientist portrayed on film. Do you have any bad examples of scientists in, in previous sci-fi films and, and movies? <laughs> oh, many, many. But I'm, 
you I'm far too diplomatic to mention them by name. No, I mean, I mean, there's actually the one example that we we've used in several films as what not to do. There was a film, a disaster movie called 2012, mm-hmm. uh, which was released in 2012. And the Earth is falling apart, and I think it's John Cusack and, and various others. Uh, uh, it's a disaster movie. Um, now, there's some pretty lame science in there, which I sort of don't care about because it's a disaster movie and it's not meant to be a sort of serious work. But the scientist, when they're trying to figure out what's happening, he says he looks at a screen and he taps it and, and, and he's just realized, just had a great revelation and says, the neutrinos are mutating. Right? And this is the cause of the Earth falling apart. Now, this is such a nonsensical thing to say <laughs> that, that it became a sort of benchmark of we don't want any lines in these films which are going to make anyone in the audience go, I'm sorry, what did you just say? <laughs> I'm laughing even though I don't even know why it doesn't make sense. But <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a sort of MacGuffin. It's, a, uh-huh. it's, a, it's just a nonsense line to make someone sound smart when actually it's the dumbest thing they could possibly say. Now, in some cases, it's just annoying. In some cases, it just makes me sort of roll my eyes. In other cases, I sort of, it washes over me. There's a film called Lucy with Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It starts with that whole idea that we only use 10% of our brain. And then what could we achieve if we had access to the other 90%? Now, this is a myth, right? It's a complete lie. It was made up by someone in the 1950s, and for some reason it's become incredibly popular yeah. as an idea. We use 100% of our brains all the time, and if we didn't, your heart would stop or your lungs would stop. Um, it doesn't mean that we use all of our brain with the same ferocity all the time. Um, so, you know, people like me go around trying to slightly correct these myths because they, they're, they're either dumb or they can be quite damaging. Mm-hmm. When I was watching Lucy, this is like the first line of the film. I think Morgan Freeman says it with some great gravitas. And, I, I, you know, I, I heard it and rolled my eyes. And then in the, in the next few minutes, the whole setup of the film is so preposterous and so insane um, that I sort of parked that away and, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's, 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 as, it's as dumb as bricks. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. So I think it's, you know, judging when it matters and when, when it doesn't. I've spoken to a few advisors in other fields, sort of medical advisors and even philosophers and things like that. And, and one of the things seems to be to sort of science-fy the blackboards and whiteboards. That ah. mo- <laughs> Is that something you do as well? That was actually how I started. Oh, yeah? With, so um, my, my, you mentioned at the beginning that I, I worked on World War Z. It was just a, it was like three days worth of work, but I got asked to come in and it was literally to science the whiteboards in fact mm-hmm. and and I did that and you know it was it was great fun it was quite good money for just drawing equations and graphs on a whiteboard mm-hmm. and um it, that all of those scenes got cut I don't think they're in the film mm-hmm. at all um and then the next film I worked on after that which was the same team was uh, quite a fun film called uh, the Kingsman mm-hmm. and it was exactly the same job it was basically there was a lecture theater Mark Hamill was the professor Oh, yes, he was. That must have been a kick. <laughs> My God, it was. And, and in fact, when I was doing the, the decorating the boards, the production designer didn't know who he was. And I said to I was just what? having a chat with him. And, so who's, who's the actor playing? Because it, it has Samuel L. Jackson and Colin Firth in it. And obviously he knew who they were. And then and I said, and who's the professor? And he said, I don't know, some guy. And he gets this piece of paper out of his pocket and says, Mark Hamill. <laughs> Holy smoke. I'm decorating Luke Skywalker's blackboards. So because I'm quite childish, 
I put a load of secret Easter eggs on the board, which refer to Star Wars. See, I always knew that you guys were doing that on these blackboards. <laughs> so you did a bunch of Star Wars stuff, right? <laughs> There's one thing, and I've, I've got the freeze frame of it that I've taken, and you can you just cannot make it out. But I know it's there because I put it there. There's this graph, quite a famous graph, which shows what's known as the Goldilocks zone in uh-huh. the system. So it's it's the area in space which has planets in it which will have liquid water, of which the Earth is obviously one. And it's too cold. It's called the Goldilocks zone because it's it's too cold further away and it's too hot closer in. So I put Earth in there. And then when I found out it was Mark Hamill in that role, I also put Tatooine and Hoth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's pretty nerdy, but, um, you know, it kept me entertained for a day. <laughs> no, I knew you guys were doing this. But um, you write in, in one of your books about... Um, representations of aliens, which I thought was interesting. So um, that there's a couple ways that pop culture represent aliens, I guess, good or bad. Um, what can you tell us about that? I spent way too long thinking about aliens in, in films, um, possibly <laughs> a sign of a wasted life. But I think that there really are only two ways that you can get aliens right. When thinking about evolution and how organisms evolve and which and there's no reason to think that evolution wouldn't happen if aliens do exist in the rest of the universe which i suspect that they probably do but you know if you reran the tape of evolution on earth and change just the tiniest things then we would not end up looking like we do so when you think about aliens in films there's no reason to presuppose that they should look like humanoid mm-hmm. unless that is part of the narrative like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, they are disguising themselves as humans so they don't get seen. Um, Superman, Kal-El, Supergirl, or, or the Kryptonians are like that. They they dress up as uh, as they do in order to be disguised. David Bowie is the man who fell to Earth. They live. Mm. They are annoyed in order to be disguised. So there's that half of it. And then the other half is is to make them incomprehensible to us. There's something that we only just recognize as being conscious entities, but they are incomprehensible. And and these are the classics of science fiction movies, examples being 2001, in which the monolith is, you know, there's no attempt to explain what that is. Right. In Solaris, the intelligence is the planet. We don't really know what it is or what it wants. And then the I think Annihilation fits perfectly into that model because there is no attempt to explain what it is. We don't recognize it. We don't understand it. They even say explicitly, you know, at the beginning, Benedict Wong's character, when he's interrogating Natalie Portman, says, what did it want? And she says, I don't know whether it wanted anything. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really crucial. It's a really key idea that you don't really see in science fiction that often. The assumption that aliens have come to us with a purpose rather than what we know about evolution, which is that it is blind. And it, evolution, uh, apart from with us, uh, evolution has generated a billion species whose only motivation is to continue to exist. And maybe that is at the expense of other organisms. 
and, and that's what annihilation is. Did, was it destroying everything? Well, no, it was changing everything. And evolution is, by definition, change. Right, right. And, and, and sort of bringing out fears that we may ourselves have. I remember when sort of the pretentious part of my film studies in, in university where we talked a lot about representations of the vagina dentata. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can see that all the time now if you watch sci-fi. Yeah, that, that is true. And that particularly occurs when, when science fiction is written by men, because it's, I, I guess the theory behind it is that it is, this is one of the most terrifying and emasculinizing uh, things that can happen. But it is that sense as well that the sort of uncanny valley is maybe extending it a bit beyond just things that we we sort of recognize, but at the same time are very discombobulating because they are different or overly. Uh, I mean, if the listeners don't know what we mean, it's sort of like it's like a plant or something that looks like you know in the shape of a giant with teeth that someone may fall into or get bitten by or something there's a bit of that in annihilation as well yeah i guess so i mean i suppose the classic example is the predator in the predator movies when it takes its helmet off it has an opening an orifice which is its mouth but it is it is more resembles a vagina than it does um a human mouth so i think it's that thing that is something that we recognize but is wrong it's off and therefore it's it's threatening because those are the things that we find more frightening than things that we recognize very clearly i want to also have time to ask you about ex machina of course which is really one of the highlights of of the past few years i have to say where are we in terms of the ai in that movie we're quite a long way off. I mean, the line we use is that, uh, or Alex used, is is that um, this is set 10 minutes in the future. Now, what that means is this is a world that we recognize where technology is advanced, is more advanced than we currently have it. There's two really big limitations on where we are with AI and robotics, and not just the intelligence, but the robotics, because she is a fully embodied artificial being, um, Ava. Mm-hmm played by Alicia Vikander. And the, the first is that we don't really understand human consciousness, right? So we, we don't have a model of what human consciousness is. Um, we are working towards that. It may, it's not that it's one thing. It's something that we recognize, but we're so far away from being able to model it either in a computer or in hardware or wetware, uh, which is what they use in, in Ex Machina. So progress in that is decades away. I think it's a very, very clever technique that Alex wrote into that, which is that her intelligence comes from observing how humans behave by uh, mining search algorithms. You know, right. how, how Google, we, essentially, it's right? I couldn't possibly comment on the similarities between <laughs> existing tech companies and the Blue Book in uh, Ex Machina, um, especially with the Facebook revelations. So that, that, that's one, one thing, that the, the, we're nowhere near that human level intelligence um because you know a key thing about the film that i think uh, in, in the many discussions i've had about this is sometimes people don't <laughs> they don't explicitly acknowledge which is that it's central to what happens is that she she doesn't have human consciousness she doesn't have human level intelligence she has her own uh, consciousness and intelligence which is qualitatively different from ours and we don't know what it is and we never see the world through her eyes because of course you can't um, but she does have, she is, Ava is conscious and she is intelligent. It's just not us. It's not recognizable to us, which is why she, spoiler alert, wins and everyone else loses. Mm-hmm. 
the second thing is the robotics. We're, we're nowhere near that level of sophistication in robotics, although we are getting there. But the main limiting technology for robotics of that order is battery power. We can't power things independently like that, like Ava is in the film, with, for a long enough time for them to survive in the wild. You know, the, the joke is that after she leaves the compound at the very end, um, she'd probably run out of batteries in about 20 minutes and that would be... Oh, no. You were so happy for her freedom. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that because I was too and not everyone else is. And I, that, I feel great elation that she is free. Well, Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for your time and good luck. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to your new TV series with uh, Alex. Are, can you tell us anything or is that all top? It's called Devs, uh, D-E-V-S, and... It is an eight-part series, I think. Um, I, I, sh I shouldn't say too much about it because it, this is sort of well beyond my pay grade. Um, but uh, it, it's set in a similar sort of world to Ex Machina. And it is, uh, it's eight episodes, and I've read them all. And if you've come to expect high quality from Ex Machina and Annihilation and Alex Garland's other work, then th this will not disappoint you. Well, looking forward to that. Thank you so much for your time. Lovely to talk to you, Christine. Thank you very much to Dr. Adam Rutherford. Annihilation is in theaters in the U.S. and on Netflix everywhere else. And now, best-selling author Jonathan Abrams' new book is called All the Pieces Matter, the inside story of The Wire. It's an oral history about David Simon's iconic television show. Mr. Abrams is with us to talk about it. Mr. Abrams, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, no problem, Christina. How are you doing today? I was saying it in the intro, and, and on all kinds of official and audience lists, um, The Wire still ranks as one of the best and most important shows on television. How did The Wire as a show impact television dramas and the landscape that came after it? I mean, if you look at television before The Wire, a lot of it was like law and order, like you open and close a case in one hour and everything is solved perfectly. So I think The Wire changed that. It was just this wide open world where nothing got closed all nice and tidy by the end of an episode. Uh, and it just kept going throughout the 60 episodes. It was one continuous story. And I think shows like Breaking Bad and Mad Men and shows that came afterward, kind of this prestige television age that we're in, owe a lot to The Wire for being a groundbreaker in that sense. And it wasn't really very popular during the at least the beginning of its run. Um, what changed? I mean, if you can imagine watching TV back in 2002 when The Wire premiered and you get dropped off in this dense universe with all these different characters and there's no explanation for what's going on or where you are i can just imagine being a viewer and watching that hour and then it's a then you don't get it for another week right 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 <laughs> so it, it was hard to carry on and what benefited the wire so greatly was when streaming came along and people were able to binge episodes and seasons at a time and really be able to follow along to such an intricate story so you talk to creator David Simon a lot. How does he feel about these tremendous accolades and every, you know, this is the best uh, TV show in TV history and, and things like that? Well, what does he say about that? I think it's a little bit of a mixed blessing for him because his whole emphasis was trying to uh, bring light to these arguments that he was trying to put forth about 
how institutions like the police or politics or media or the school, how they oftentimes uh, weren't suitable to help it, the individuals who are struggling up against it. So a lot of the times when we talk about The Wire, we talk about who's the coolest character. Is it Omar? Is it Stringer Bell? And the arguments kind of get lost. So. One of the wonderful things that really in your book that really sort of gives a deeper understanding about this show is is the writer's room. And the writer's room of The Wire, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of writers and, and who've talked about the room, but this was a special room of sort of authors and novelists. Can you tell us a little bit about the writers and their different roles in the room? Yeah, so selfishly, that was my favorite part about reporting this book was being able to talk to all these wonderful, amazing novelists like Richard Price and Dennis Lehane and George Pelicanos. And what's so amazing to me is that when you're writing a novel, like it's just you and your editor and it's really solitary. Um, there's not a lot of feedback you're getting from the outside world. So these guys had to put aside their egos. They all think that they're the, the best novelists, but they come together to create this show and argue it out and be able to win arguments or lose arguments and just realize that putting out the story was their main mission and goal. And talking to them about how they accomplished that was just really, really fun. Did they have anyone in the room who could think sort of in more TV terms? Or was that the key to The Wire being so amazing that, that they, these were not thinking in TV terms? David Simon was usually the one who steered them back on track because even though he didn't have the traditional television background, he had come up working through Homicide because he had first wrote that nonfiction book and then he worked on the television show on NBC and then he had worked on the miniseries The Corner for HBO. So he was kind of gaining his understanding of the mechanisms of television during that time. So I think he always had the the bird's eye view of steering the ship and where to go with it. I've read that you've said it yourself, that the most important character on the wire is Baltimore. What was it that David Simon really wanted to tell about Baltimore? Well, I think there's a couple things that go into that. Um, One, Baltimore was just the place where David Simon and a lot of the other writers and people working on that show had such a intimate knowledge. And two, I think Baltimore was going through uh, a lot of issues at the time and still now where a lot of people had lost hope in the institutions that they place a lot of a lot of faith in. So there was a lot going on where Baltimore is just this really interesting place where you have the the rich touristy side of it, of the inner harbor, and then you have a lot of inner city blight and the I think one of the quotes the actor gave me was that those two sides almost ignore each other. And how does Baltimore feel about The Wire, would you say, spending time there? I think that's another mixed legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's definitely some of the politicians who are not too happy that The Wire is so closely and eternally linked to the city. Um, but at the same time, David Simon was honest and open in how he explored the city. And I think there is a lot to it that The Wire could have taken place in a lot of other cities in America. It's not just a a story about Baltimore, but a story about America. Tell me, um, one of the characters and actors that made such an impression on me, I remember watching the show, is Bubbles. Tell me a little bit about his journey onto The Wire. 
the actor who played Bubbles, his name is Andre Royo, and he was such, just such a fun interview because he had such a great memory and he was perfect in kind of putting the perspective of where the wire stands after all these years. So he really tore himself down to be able to get into the the mind to play a, a drug addict like Bubbles and to be able to really try to display the human nature of addiction uh, before just playing a drug addict. And I think it worked. And you mean that there's like method acting involved? Not method to the point where he was taking drugs, drugs, but but um, like I think one of the quotes he told me was that he tried to find the things that he was not addicted to, but things he did like mindlessly every day. So he would he would say that he would drink a bunch of coke every day. So he stopped drinking coke, and he would watch basketball every day, and he stopped watching basketball to just try and see like what his mind would do. Uh, when he was not giving catering to what his mind would do mindlessly. And that's what he used to try to get into the headspace of bubbles. Another sort of foreign actor, Idris Elba, was cast on the show. What? How did he feel about playing his role in this very sort of American-centered <laughs> show? Yeah, it was funny. I remember talking to him, and one of his things was that he was almost at his wit's end of trying to land a role in America and I, I want to say, like he said, that if he didn't land the wire, then he was hitting back overseas. But I think it was kind of a mixed bag for him as well. I know I keep saying that, but nothing in the wire world is completely black and white. He was always kind of wondering in his mind, was he living up to playing this character to where people who met him in real life and wanted to see Stringer Bell, he knew that they were disappointed when he would have this British accent (laughs) and and not be like Stringer at all. Let's talk about that very, very famous fuck scene. (laughs) There's a scene which even should have had more fucks than it had to begin with. Can you tell me a little bit about that scene and what you learned interviewing the people around it? Yeah, so that scene basically started from a conversation that David Simon had had with Terry McLarney, who was inside the Baltimore Police Department, where Terry said that these cops are going to be in such a rhythm that one of these days they're only going to be able to communicate in expletives. (laughs) And it was something that stayed in the back of David Simon's head. So then later on, Ed Burns wrote the scene, and David Simon approached Dominic West and Wendell Pierce and said, he laid out the scene, and then like the caveat at the end, he, he was telling Wendell was that you guys are only going to be able to communicate w- with the word fuck. Doing the tremendous work that you did with this book and all the interviews and really deep diving, what are some of the things that surprised you most in learning about the making of The Wire? One of the things that surprised me was just how much was sourced from real life, which was basically everything that mm-hmm. came out of The Wire. That's still astonishing to me. George Pelicanos said that uh, when Omar jumps out of the apartment building in season five, that he was reading on the internet that people were complaining that the wire finally jumped the shark. And Pelicanos was laughing about it because in real life, the guy who they were basing that storyline off of jumped off of an apartment story, like maybe like two stories higher than (laughs) what they showed in the show. And lastly, the title of your book is actually a quote by by Lester. Can you remind the audience about that? (laughs) That uh, all the pieces matter. And it's a tidbit and a line that I love because I just think about, you know, somebody like Bunny Colvin who gets 
introduced in season two and you're like kind of wondering who this guy is and they show him every once in a while and then you see this big storyline down the road that they that the writers have built up for him and you know that they introduced him with purpose and precision so it's something that i really appreciated about the show Miss mm-hmm. Draymond, thank you so much for taking your time to talk about your book and about the wire that was really nice anytime i appreciate you Thanks to Jonathan Abrams. His book is called All the Pieces Matter, The Inside Story of the Wire. And thank you all for listening. Um, Send us your feedback and follow Pop Culture Confidential on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at podpopculture. And listen to us next week only here on Spotify. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.